The Organic Stream is made possible by Biobin. This is the Organic Stream on Compostory.org, the bite-sized podcast series interviewing experts and key figures in the environmental sphere on all things organic and recycling. Get your lunchtime organic fix here. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and we've got a half-hour episode for you today, interviewing two guests, both from London. Uh, Rokia Yaman, Director of Community by Design, and Claire Brass, founder of Seed. Uh, first, we'll talk to Rokia, who has been working on a small-scale anaerobic digestion system in King's Cross. Um, then Claire, who for the last few years has been working on an organics recycling program for an inner-city housing estate, also in King's Cross. And finally, I'll be asking them about key success factors and any pitfalls they may have encountered along the way. They've got lots of advice and information, so please stay tuned. <laughs> So, Rokia, I'll start with you. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Community by Design and uh, the project you're working on. Okay. Uh, Community by Design is a social interest company, um, community interest company, and we are currently developing um, anaerobic digestion on a small scale. So um, it's looking at trying to make the technology cost-effective at that scale and um, user-friendly. Uh, there's not that much of it at the moment at the very small scale. Uh, and what we're doing is to see if we can spin out as many sort of environmental, social and, and economic benefits as possible all in one go. So it's it's a partnership project um, and we are just one of the partners, Community by Design, and the other partners include Methanogen, who is a, a supplier, a research engineer from a company called Alvin Blanche. Um, there are other engineers involved and also Leeds University and they're looking at the control and monitoring side of things. Right, and um, how are you funded? We're funded by Camden Council um, and they They've been great because they've supported us through the, the initial two years and we couldn't have done this without them. And their sort of objective in funding us is to see if we can generate any employment and training opportunities. So the training side of things, we've had quite a lot of opportunities during the build, but also um, all, all kinds of different stages of the project. Um, and by the end of this year, we hope to sort of do a bit of economic modelling and, and see, how, you know, where we can pull the income in from to take it beyond the funding. Um, but RAP has also funded us, so RAP are Waste and Resources Action Programme, and they've given us funding for the next year uh, to do the, the other two sides, basically. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, I know that some of our listeners have not yet graduated from compostory.org or are beginners on the anaerobic digestion topic. Uh, maybe you can re-detail the process so we have everyone on board here. Okay, so anaerobic digestion is a type of composting that happens without oxygen and um, it takes place in a sealed vessel and um, it can break down any organic material um, except for wood. So it's the lignin in the wood that it can't deal with. Um, and we capture the gas that comes off it, which is um, about 60% methane, 40% CO2, and then some trace elements of other gases. And the, the waste itself turns into a, a pretty liquid fertilizer. Um, that's what happens when we use food waste as the main feedstock. So it's, it's a good complement actually to compost that's generated through an aerobic process. So they complement each other pretty well in terms of nutrients. Brilliant stuff. And I was looking as well at how you use the biogas that you trap. Maybe you can explain that a little bit. 
All right. Um, so the biogas, uh, it's the 60% which of it, which is methane, is pretty much identical to what comes out of your mains gas. So that's the bit that we can burn and, and generate heat and electricity with. Um, it can also be used as a vehicle fuel. So we basically have got funding for the next year to set up three sites. And one of them has just been set up and, and been commissioned already. That one's going to be generating electricity and heat using something that looks like a boiler. It's called a combined heat and power unit. It's a microscale kind of unit and um, the electricity and heat will be used for the building that we're attached to. At the other sites uh, we're going to use the gas to just generate space heating so use it in a, in a normal kind of space heater and that will be in polytunnels and greenhouses um, and it's quite nice because we don't need to do anything to the gas before we do that. At some of the other sites we're cleaning the gas taking out the CO2 and various other things but the one with the polytunnels and greenhouses you can just heat it up. The CO2 in the gas then comes out into the atmosphere and it helps the plants to grow so you get the heat and the CO2 and then the third site um, is is where we're going to clean it really well and compress it to about 200 bar or something like that and that will be used for vehicle fuel. And um, I was just wondering now as well, I was uh, very curious to know how you go about collecting the, all the organic waste. Um, I saw on your website that it's bicycles that you use. Yep, that's right. We've got a cargo bike. So at the moment, the, the digester that's up and running is two cubic meters. It's not massive, but it is to demonstrate that the technology can work. And we are collecting about 100 kilos a week at the moment, which is depends depends what what kind of size you are as to whether that's big or small but we probably go up to about 350 kilos maximum once we're fully up and running but you have to treat the digester as a stomach and keep it warm and, and stirred and start to feed it slowly basically so it doesn't get shocked okay okay so it's a very gentle process yes to begin with yeah and um, are businesses happy or is it businesses that you collect from or where do you collect it? Yeah, mainly local businesses. Everything's within a one mile radius area and we really want to kind of demonstrate the benefits of doing it all very locally. And with bicycles and trailers, it's obviously zero carbon. Um, if we had a bigger network, let's say, we could maybe move to a small vehicle and that we could maybe convert the engine to run on biomethane, which is the gas once it's been scrubbed and, and compressed. So you then kind of be demonstrating a closed loop cycle with, within the sort of local area with the vehicles that go out and the signage on it. And uh, have you got maybe an idea about how much uh, biogas and fertilizer you can generate with a small system like this, uh, how much it would be? Yes, yes, we do. Um, so two, two cubic meter system running on food waste, you're going to generate about twice that volume a day. That's about four cubic meters of gas and 60% of it being methane. That's about 2.4 cubic meters of methane so that's the burnable bit and I think I did some calculations a while back and it seemed to say that if you looked over a year that system could produce enough energy for a household in terms of the gas and electricity production using one of these CHP units but when you look at your domestic usage of gas and electricity it changes through the year because it's colder in the winter obviously so you're using more so it but the digester itself would produce gas fairly constantly on a 24-7 basis so it's one of the, the challenges as to how to manage that kind of energy output um, and how to use it when it's summer or winter or, or whatever. So on each site, we've got slightly different solutions. <laughs> That's very cool. And uh, so where or in what context would it be beneficial, do you think, uh, to roll out more of these anaerobic digestion systems in schools maybe? Or where would be a good place to put them into? 
Uh, well, we may have a school that's interested, so that's one possibility. It would have to have space, and then it would have to have a use for the gas, and you'd have to make sure that through the holidays and stuff, there's a there's a use for it all the way through there. We think that having done a bit of research, the kind of the main market sort of areas would be small businesses who produce waste, because they have to pay for that waste to be taken away, organic waste. It might make more sense for them to process it on site and uh, benefit from the renewable energy and, and the fertilizer, particularly if they grow things. Or, or have the chance to grow things on site. And, and one of our uh, sites this year will be an organic whole food manufacturer. So he's got a factory with grounds. He's a very keen permaculturist. It's Alara Whole Foods in, in central London. And uh, he's already built a 50-metre forest garden. He's got an orchard and he's got a vineyard on site. So his um, digester is going to be six cubic metres. Um, that's going to be big enough to produce enough vehicle fuel for his food delivery vehicle. So it will go around and deliver local food and <laughs> run on, on the gas from his food waste. So he produces enough waste the factory produces enough waste to run that digester and the fertilizer will be used all on site there so it's going to be pumped around in an irrigation system so that will be a fantastic demonstration of, of kind of closed loop um, recycling yeah it's pretty perfect really yes it is yeah yeah <laughs> Hey, you said I remember as well, I was looking through some of your interviews you did on YouTube and stuff, and then you mentioned that these very small anaerobic digestion systems are not very common here in the Western world, um, but that you would have known about, um, this would have been happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. You know about that, yeah. So basically, in the West, we've got quite a large number of um, industrial-sized digesters, and I think the incentives are mainly to do with the energy that's produced. So um, there are green tariffs for the electricity or the heat that you produce using these systems. In developing countries, there are much more, uh, many more micro-scale digesters. So therefore, maybe an individual small holding or group of houses or something like that, similar to the scale that we're looking at. But because they tend to be in warmer climates, they need less technology. They don't need to be heated generally. They're often not stirred, um, whereas we have to keep it warm and keep it stirred and um, there's other considerations in a cold climate. So I think what we've heard is that there's more capacity in those micro digesters in developing countries than there is in all the digesters combined in Western countries. So there's absolutely millions of digesters in, in, in China and India, for instance. That's fascinating. And uh, did you research about them to get started on your own? or? We, we had a look at some of the designs, yeah. And, and, but they basically kind of benefit because the labour there is a lot cheaper, uh, whereas here that would be much more of the bill. And so in some cases, in China, I believe, they, they have somebody who's trained to build these digesters and they build them into the ground. I've seen some built with bricks and cement um, and they get the community involved in building it and that makes everything a lot cheaper. So here, I mean, it could happen in the same way here that, you know, we are developing a digester which is a lot lower cost than some of the others just so that community groups can benefit from it. And one of the thoughts that we have is that we, we can troubleshoot the whole thing get it to the point where it's really robust and then uh, have it as a kind of a kit that people can put together if they want so that would bring the, the cost right down again for them yeah that would be amazing mm. so uh claire now on to you um, I was very excited to read about your project Food Loop, um, a recycling project set up in Maiden Lane Estates in London. 
Uh, I was especially taken by the idea of getting the community involved in the project itself. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Um, so Food Loop was born out of a DEFRA-funded project. So DEFRA is the Department for Environment and Food and Rural Affairs. And the project was about looking into the barriers. What is it that makes it so difficult for people to separate their food waste and to give it to you in a separated state. And we proposed to carry out this research project based on the principle that people don't understand that food waste is a resource. They look at food waste as a waste stream and they don't see it as a, as a resource. And if they were able to visualise that food waste is a biodegradable, natural, compostable product that turns back into earth, then people would be able to associate that with the growth of new food and therefore they would understand that it was something precious. And we set out to explore in very dense urban environments where food waste collection is actually very difficult, we set out to explore what the barriers were and what might a community be able to do in order to recycle their own food waste. And it was together with Camden Council, London Borough of Camden, and the proposal was that we set up a machine on the estate which composted the residents' own food waste. And we asked the residents to help us design a system which suited their needs. And so we did that for two years. We set up the, the machine. A company was brought in to manage the actual collections. We worked with residents to design um, not only the communications, but the whole system. How should it work? What do they think the benefits might be? And through talking to residents and working with them, we kind of established that we asked them what they thought was a good idea to do with the compost. And they said um, that they thought it'd be really good to use it to not only for growing food. We were thinking more about growing food. Their idea was more about you know, making the estate a more beautiful place to live. So one of the things that came out of this project is people who live in these, um, this is quite a run-down estate, it's quite a problematic estate. Lots of people have got more immediate problems than worrying about the environment in a wider sense. But the thing that they are very concerned about is how they can improve their own local environment. And now, two years down the line, we're, it's almost entirely run and managed by residents, volunteer residents. Uh, no one is paid but we do generate enough income. We get a little bit of money back through the North London Waste Authority, who reward community groups for biodegradable waste collection. And we sell a little bit of our product as a fertiliser and a slug repellent to urban food growers and urban gardeners. Um, I'm just envisioning how it was when you started out and uh, you went there for the first time and everything. Uh, how did you get the community involved? Um, was there a lot of interest or? That's a very good question. I mean, I think where the first issue is how do you recruit people? And recruitment is still the most difficult thing of these projects. And you need to get under the skin of the people, your sort of primary stakeholders. Now, often the thing which is driving you, so in our case, the environmental challenge of food waste is not the thing at all which may be driving a resident of a housing estate. Uh, the thing which works quite well, and I think this is a really good trick, is we piggybacked on an event that was happening at the estate. Just when we started the project, there was a barbecue event coming up on the estate. And we went along to that event and we set up a stall with a poster. Um, all we did really was go along with a whole stall full of little tomato plants and a bucket of food waste and a bucket of compost. 
and just talk to people and say, did you know that your food waste can look like this one day and then it turns into this? And most people were quite surprised, but it was an opportunity for us to start a conversation with them. And then we asked them if they'd like to be involved in some design work. So lots of people actually said after they thought, you know, the, the design workshop was a cool thing. So we were going to be designing the leaflets for the communication for this new project. And so we had about 15, we had about 20 people sign up. Every time someone um, gave us their phone number or contact details, we gave them a tomato plant. And I think the key thing here is if you're recruiting is to go to where people are already going to be going and just give them a little, little tiny reward just to have a first point of contact. And after that, we managed to get about 15 to come to our first workshop. So that, that was a really good way in. We also had, which is not at all indifferent, because it was a funded research project, we also were able to give people a financial incentive. It wasn't cash, actually, but we were able to give them gardening-related products when they spent a day with us in a workshop. So it wasn't really payment, but it was, again, a little reward, and that was quite lucky, and I think, you know, it's really nice to be able to give them something back. Yeah, that's a very clever point, actually. That's really cool. And uh, so, Rocky and Claire, I just asked you about your projects, and now I'd like to ask the both of you, what barriers or roadblocks did you encounter when setting up? Um, Claire, you go first. Sometimes the bigger decisions take a long time. So even, for example, getting a memorandum of understanding which allowed Seed to run the project. Well, we started running it anyway, but it took three months to have an actual piece of paper saying, OK, you can run the project. Yes, that, that definitely can happen. Um, our kind of barriers have been more in terms of legislative ones and the regulatory sort of rules around animal byproducts in particular. Yes. So um, I know, Clay, you've kind of sorted things out at your end, but we're still a bit in limbo because the people who are deciding about, you know, anaerobic digestion at this small scale and whether or not it's possible to distribute the digestate still haven't really made up their minds. Uh, yes. So when we when we started the project, they'd said, yes, it's fine to distribute, but you need an, a, an agreement with the people who are going to use it to say that they're not going to put it near farmed animals. So we thought, okay, that's fine. Um, but now they've seemed to have changed their minds. And so we're in a, in a slight quandary at the moment. And it's something we hope we're going to be able to work through. But, you know, it's just, it's partly because it's not really done that much at this scale. So everything's yes. a bit new. Yeah, we, we have had similar issues. And actually, we've only managed to have sign off on the distribution of the product, which is a critical part of the, the cycle, if you like, you can't really make this work, this kind of project, unless you can close that loop by distributing the, the end product. And in theory, you know, hopefully making some money out of it. Um, and it's taken us a good year and a half before we got that sorted. And it's partly, as you say, because the legislation is still slightly in flux, and is still changing. And we've managed to get away with quite a lot by being such a small scale that we fall under the radar. So we, you have to be tick a certain number of boxes. For example, you have to be producing less than a certain tonnage of uh, compost per year, and you have to have a certain less than a certain number of people working on the project, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And by slipping under that radar, we actually have quite a degree of freedom, a much higher degree of freedom than a slightly bigger project might have, like yours. Mm. So while it's, you have the advantage of being a bigger project, in, in <clears> lots of ways it's a good thing, but in lots of ways being small is an advantage too. It's, I mean, we, we are basically classified as the same scale as you guys, and it's not so much to do – we haven't encountered the problem so much to do with scale. It's more to yeah. do with the technology. So um, 
coming under the radar we, we can also get the low the low risk matrix position right. with, with the animal health but because we're not pasteurizing or we're not we that's weren't right. planning to um that's the sticking point basically and they're not happy for us to take it off site at the moment so that may change uh but yeah and because it with your technology the heat process is built in and our process the heat process is built in but it's only to 40 degrees and to pasteurize it to get it properly by animal um, byproducts regulations you have to take it to 70 degrees for an hour and that that kind of raises the, the sort of the energy cost if you like of the whole thing so if we can prove that we can kill off the pathogens we need to without doing that um, we, we're hoping that that might be acceptable but if we can't we might have to pasteurize so that's another cost on top of everything else. Right. Um, well, in a similar vein now, uh, since this is going out to an international audience, maybe there's some advice you might have um, for people who are starting up something similar somewhere else. Or maybe there's something you wish you'd known when you started out. When I started doing this stuff, I really didn't know anything about anything. And I had a hunch that there's, there was something in food waste, but I didn't really know any of the detail or I didn't really know where the clue was going to be. And it's really important to do an initial phase of research. So I think research is really, really critical. And another thing which I think is very important is not assuming that you know the answers and not being afraid to admit that you don't have the answers, but to sort of state what you know and what you think the answer could be, and then use that as a starting point for a conversation with a whole host of experts who can set you straight. So our project was kind of built on a vague notion if you make the link between food waste and food growing more evident, are people more likely to compost their food waste? That was the basic premise. And starting from there, that was an idea that we visualised with our idea of getting people to collect and compost their food waste locally and then grow things with, with the compost. Um, and once we had done that, we were able to use that basic visualisation as a, a kind of a starting point for a conversation with all kinds of different experts um, whether they were experts because they were people who lived on a housing estate or they were experts within the local council or whether they were um, from the waste management company that was subcontracted by the council. We spoke to all these people and each of them added to our knowledge and slightly shifted our perception of what the solution needed to be. And that is a process that goes on, I think, continuously. You, you need to continuously change and flex and adapt your thinking to accommodate your learning. But also, you know, things are in flux all the time. And I think it's about being very, very light footed and flexible and, you know, keep going. You have to you have to keep at it. Hmm. That's excellent advice. Uh, yes, I would agree. I'd just probably add, uh, and this is advice that I probably don't follow very well, but it, it's <laughs> it's really valid nevertheless. Don't, don't try to take on too much. It's easy to get overcomplicated with things sometimes. And you'll get a lot of positive feedback from people because it's a concept, waste to energy, closed loop cycles. It's a concept that everybody intrinsically likes, that you know it makes sense to them. People don't like waste and don't like waste going to waste. I'd say I think what the, the usual kind of thing when you're at, with setting up a project is to look at things like how much waste do you have or how much waste can you get your hands on, um, what are the logistics of that, and then what would you like to use the gas and the digestate for, and bear in mind that the digestate is as important, if not more important, than the, the energy from when, when you're talking about anaerobic digestion. So it's not just like an add-on, it's one of the primary outputs 
um, and it often gets a bit overlooked. But with our kind of digester, for instance, the, the logistics are basically we, we've got a two cubic meter digester. Once we're fully up and running, we'll be putting in roughly 40 to 50 kilos a day. And pretty much most of that will come out as digestate a day. That's liquid digestate. So it's a lot of stuff to use, and you have to make sure that you've got the channels to route this stuff to. Otherwise, you'll end up with a lot of surplus that you might end up having to put down the drain. So it, just work on, on developing the networks for using it, unless you can use it on site, which is perfect. And then think about, um, in terms of anaerobic digestion again, think about the gas use um, through the seasons. So not just um, a one-off use, unless it's vehicle fuel, which you can use all the way around the year. But heating, you w will need less of in the summer, obviously. Um, and so you could use it instead to heat some hot water for teas and coffees or cooking or something like that. It could be a different use then. Well, yeah, uh, that's that's great advice too. Uh, well, just building on Rocky's point, though, I do remember in doing one funding application that we did, which was all about closed loop recycling. And the thing that they said was, we they had three things you absolutely had to have nailed down in order to be able to get this funding. You had to know where your feedstock was coming from. You had to know and have understood how you were going to process it, and you had to know what you were going to do with the output afterwards. So I think that what Rocky said is absolutely critical. You know, if you get stuck with a growing mountain of, or you know, waterfall of liquid compost, you've got a problem. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my it's God. Quite, it's quite a big problem. Yeah, but if anyone is interested in the project, I'm always very happy to take people around to see our project. Uh, so you're very welcome to pass that message on. Yes, definitely. Uh, anyone in London or England, please go check them out. I had two ladies come from Czechoslovakia and they have subsequently set up a, a composting project and they're in touch with me. And it's always very satisfying, you know, because they came and took notes and everything. And we, we are putting together a, a manual now because we, we are in the end of our project. Is the, the idea is that we replicate what we're doing so we keep on developing these small-scale recycling projects on housing estates. Uh, and I guess I'd like to add uh, uh, the same thing again. You know, anybody who is interested in visiting our, our demonstration site near King's Cross is really welcome, and they could tie in with the, well, they could, they, they could visit both sites at the same yes. time because they're pr practically within walking distance. So that's really good. Oh yeah, they're both um, <laughs> They're very close together. Completely. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, guys, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you Thanks. Thanks. No problem. Thanks. Thank you. That was Rakia Yaman and Claire Brass for the organic stream on compoststory.org. Check out more from Rakia's project on communitybydesign.co.uk and for more on Claire's project, check out seedfoundation.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is compoststory.org. That's all we have time for today. Looking forward to next time. You are listening to The Organic Stream on compostory.org. The Organic Stream is made possible by Biobin. Biobin is the mobile, on-site, organic and wet material management solution. Wherever organic or wet materials are generated, Biobin is the solution. Learn more on www.biobin.net. <laughs>